is Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country. And we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers, John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home. And Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. 
The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues, here on Our American Stories.
church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hand. This is Our American Stories, and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu. A documentary that will make you laugh, think, and cry. And this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film. And we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I forgot so much. I forgot. I forgot so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten... What I used to do after I became a young lady, I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here, I've been here, I've been here 90 years. And if I could remember, I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, um, you ready? Yes, I want to be. In that number, I went to St. Wow. He's saying when the saints go by, marching by, and it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working at Fort Jackson, and my son, on February the 4th was 69. <laughs> I didn't know I could talk so much. What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something... We all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. 
Henry has dementia and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Wait a minute. I got two in the eyes. Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I, I would sing with this. You can if you like. When I first met him, he was very isolated, and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people. And then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen, the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes. I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, I guess Cab uh, Calloway was my number one band guy. I liked it. Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was, and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What's your favorite song? Oh, I'll be home there Christmas. You can count plans on me with plenty of snow, mistletoe. Present, wrap around you free. Ow, Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry, Ma, yeah. What was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? Of my life. It was part of my life was riding a bicycle, grocery boy. What'd you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohen explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a $40 personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music 
doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me. Our All healthcare right. system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. And we figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything, medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, Knife? No. Fork? Or spoon? Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure. Why not? Here you go. I don't know how to do this. Straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See the little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Oh. Want to stop the music? Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's a, a tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> This incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohen's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor those in their final days. More after these messages. Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, 
He saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. His eyeglasses ripped from his face and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. that he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I wish I was a bird. 
Airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending, he aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach. But he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing. But on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, When did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, It hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. Saw a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons, and I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. just a great job, Jesse. And you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys 
tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it in the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. They were crazy, they were wild, they were unqualified, and they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories. The famous ones like the Wright Brothers and the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story here on Our American Stories. The air can get quite thin. The temperature is freezing and all you hear is howling. we continue here with our American stories and this next one is about a really serious subject and one that affects so many millions of American families and we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and my friend Chuck Stetson in the Stetson family office does such terrific work in this area and we're doing so many really strong health stories in partnership with the Stetson family office and this is one he just kept coming at us with and just said, you got to tell this story. You've got to call this lady. And so today we bring you the story of Meryl Comer. She is an Emmy Award-winning reporter. She was one of the first women in the early 80s to host a nationally syndicated debate show. But about 20 years ago, Meryl's husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Here is her story. The man I live with is not the man I fell in love with and married. He has slowly been robbed of something we all take for granted, the ability to navigate the mundane activities of daily living, bathing, shaving, dressing, feeding, and using the bathroom. His inner clock is confused and can't be reset. His eyes are vacant and unaware, as if an internal window shade veils our access. Before I grasped what was happening, I was hurt and annoyed by my husband's behavior. Those feelings dissolved into unconditional empathy once I understood the cruelty of his diagnosis. Early onset Alzheimer's disease. He was 58. At first, I ran interference and fought for him because it was the right thing to do. He was slipping out of control, confused, childlike and helpless, his social filters stripped away. He shadowed me because I was familiar and safe, even when he could no longer remember my name. I always loved him, but during our marriage, he was often aloof and unreachable. In illness, unlike in health, he made me feel needed and important to him. Neither a scientist nor a neurologist, I have spent close to two decades trying to decipher what's going on in my husband's head, how hard and unfair it is for such a smart man to lose pieces of his intellect and independence as the circuitry of his brain misfires and corrodes. No new short-term memories stick. His internal navigational compass is shut down. His disease is my crossword puzzle. Harvey has long forgotten me, but I am constant as his co-pilot and guardian. 
Every conversation is inclusive and respectful, even though he is often unintelligible or mute. It is a charade that never ends. I bear the burden of all decisions for us both. The demons and terror of his world define mine. Any challenge is self-defeating. I play into his reality and pretend that his fate and our life together are not doomed. Unfortunately, I know better. Alzheimer's distorts and destroys shared memories that bind family ties. Caregivers are not unlike victims who survive a hurricane and find ourselves sifting through the rubble to rescue faded, storm-drenched photos or sentimental objects. We piece together what's left of our past and struggle to put down building blocks for the future. I need to make some sense of my journey through this storm. My bookshelf is lined with tomes on dementia care, yet the page I need always seems to be missing. Each brain unravels in its own quirky and idiosyncratic way. I have learned firsthand that there is no single solution to taking care of someone with dementia. Many times, personal stories involving Alzheimer's gloss over the unseemly details of care. They're written as love stories of unquestioned devotion, or living memorials to honor someone during better times. Why not? As spouses and caregivers, we deserve to do whatever works for us. It's our version of pain management. But I never wanted to embellish or soften the edges around the truth. It does not do justice to the cruelty of the disease. I offer you my own experiences from a position of hard-won humility. I hope you will thread them with your own. When I say I have cared full-time for Harvey in our home all these years, many ask me why. Even now, there is always an initial reflex that makes me want to say, do I really need to explain myself after all I've been through? I realize that the question is a natural one, a human one, a social one. The interlocutors are not judging me, but rather vicariously checking themselves. In questioning me, they're testing their own capacity to deal with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the potential impact it might have on their relationship with a partner or parent. When people hear my story, they sometimes tell me they wouldn't make the same choices. I do not hold myself up as an example to follow. No one who has ever been on the front lines of care ever questions when someone says, I can't do this anymore. But I do want to be part of the last generation of caregivers trapped by a loved one's diagnosis, an absence of disease-modifying therapies, and a troublesome lack of quality care options. When it comes to Alzheimer's, caregivers are frequently too worn out or isolated to protest. Perhaps this is why advocacy around the disease has often lacked the passion and energy that characterize the cancer and HIV AIDS communities. But how will people understand if we don't tell our stories without apology? Alzheimer's disease today affects a reported 5.4 million people in the United States and 44 million worldwide. Like a stealth invader, it is quietly demanding aging populations globally while pushing past cancer and HIV-AIDS as the most critical public health problem of our time. Every 68 seconds, another of us falls victim, 
yet 50% of those with dementia never get diagnosed. There is not a single FDA-approved drug that actually slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There have been too many failed late-stage clinical trials with promising drugs that seemed to work until it became clear they did not. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if Alzheimer's disease was a brand new emergency instead of a century-old threat to which we had somehow become inured. Perhaps people would understand that when it comes to this disease, everyone is a stakeholder because everyone is at risk. There are also 15 million caregivers just like me, unintended victims and not among the official count. Add to our legions those caring for loved ones, young and old, with diseases of the brain, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic diseases complicated by a memory disorder. We speak the same language. Our numbers amplify the collective pain that makes it impossible for me to rest. The only way to minimize the effect of Alzheimer's disease is to get out in front of it, delay its onset, or even reverse its devastation of the mind. We need to move toward early diagnosis and study adults who do not yet show symptoms. People like you and me. Such a decision entails hard personal choices, risks, and emotional discomfort. It means demanding safe and clinically valid genetic tests that let us learn if we are at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. It requires managing our lives and choices under the shadow of the possibility of disease. Those of us who are 50 years or older must stop viewing ourselves as ageless. All of us should track our cognitive health, just as we do cholesterol levels or blood pressure. I write for all of us who are still well, but have seen the devastation of Alzheimer's disease firsthand. The emergency is with us and in us. I write to clinicians, reluctant to diagnose because they can't effectively treat. Please know the inadvertent trauma you inflict on families, left confused, hurt, and helpless. Then time runs out on the ultimate conversation with our loved ones about end-of-life wishes. Their minds are erased. It's simply too late. I write to reach the generation of our adult sons and daughters who struggle to understand our lives as we care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. They stand on the precipice and wrestle with issues and decisions similar to the ones we've faced. They deserve better options and not the bankrupting burden of our care. This is not the legacy we want for our children or the way any of us wish to be remembered. I write for my grandchildren because no matter how hard I tried, Alzheimer's blanketed my home with sadness. I know that loving each of them unconditionally has been my salvation. One day, I hope they'll read these words and appreciate my choices. As I write these words, a faint glow fills the room I share with Harvey. He is always present, even though he is absent. There is an intimacy in our isolation. Nonetheless, I am willing to open the door to our room in the hope that you will find a way inside. Only then will my story be worth the pain of its telling.
And thank you, Merrill, for that. And Merrill is now the president and CEO of the Jeffrey Bean Foundation Alzheimer's Initiative, which promotes early diagnosis of the disease. It struck her husband, her beloved husband, at the age of 58. A brutal stealth invader, 5.4 million in the U.S. alone suffer from the disease. Harvey's story and his bride's, Merrill Comer, here on Our American Stories. to know how to get to Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright, and he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said that was the first American city that wasn't European was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, I wrote the book and there's certainly a, I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps of something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles, thing about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. 
It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here just the south of Santa Barbara and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of, um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built, burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the, just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And, and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This, this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother, Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then on the passports. It says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Chubichev, Russia. It was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got, in, got out of the Army. And he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, 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 think, he, I think he might have forged his... Uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work, he clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while, then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So then before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore, it was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island and the 
the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there's like five square blocks of Jews living there, and we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the uh, the neighborhood was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there, and Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there, and... Uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out. There were several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet and, my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter David Mamet and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school. I moved in with my dad, my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas in a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I, I remember, you know, like, like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but sickinger was doing the brig by uh, uh, uh kenneth brown and the uh, three penny opera and the murray Scal plays and he just kept everybody there all night 
rehearsing, and we all knew, I don't know how we knew, but we did, that when we were doing those plays, there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world. It, it was just it was just pure love, and, and you know, people who hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob. It was, it was marvelous. One of your colleagues said, we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene. What made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared. The audience didn't care. They were profoundly indifferent to everything we did. There is real freedom in that, isn't there, David? Well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes, but rather we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th- I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but... There are exceptions, and a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making, and the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great, screen, great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, how did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians and uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one, a young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hands, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying. Right. So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict. And the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention. 
But the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting. But one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's it's a, it's a, it's it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher Stanford Meisner were the both the babies of the group theater, and you know they were both started out actors didn't do well, so they became directors and theoreticians, and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner School and the Strasberg School, that were an attempt, on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was, because they were drawn to it, they loved it, they couldn't do it, they tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, and I don't think he did it on purpose, he just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation, and so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, Right. So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a um, a codependence, uh, a folly a deux between the teacher and, and the student, and the, the teacher has to you know pretend he's teaching something he may think he is, and the student has to pretend he's learning something he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame, and so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say "fuck you," I'll figure it out myself, or to say "let me try harder." So what you see is a lot of actors who quote study the quote method trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesmen in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them.
And we return to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book, Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who's trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. Yeah, well, I guess it, yeah, I guess it was. But, I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience because if you're writing for a teacher – You've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you, uh, like Billy Wilder said, ind- individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know that. And when when you got to when your life and you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to ouramericannetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday. And we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour. OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent and you write about courage. And you say this. You said a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height. It is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people... I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book, and so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see. Because <laughs> what, I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're, in effect, rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical questions? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Calvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just, he, t- he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone, and, and, and don't tidy it up for me, and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, the, the, just the worst questions for artists, and they're even worse for the audience, David. 
By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a, it's something that I think is in short supply. And I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in, in Three Kings where it's uh, George Clooney and He's head of a, he's in charge of some platoon and some about to go into combat. And the kid says, I'm scared. And George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward. And the kid says, that's fucked. And George says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid 2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is a, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her one side of her family. She grew up in Scotland. Her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of the Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There was just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is this is a magnificent religion. And all you know, all of us, Red diaper babies who said, "Oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit, or the magnificence of the American Indian, or the magnificence of the African American, or the blah blah blah." Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out, uh, in effect, that it does. Yeah, and a pretty old one too, David. A pretty old one. And yeah. it's amazing. I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay 
from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open and shut med mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a a marble statue. Or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, they say, act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article 
was the original title of the article was political civility because I, my rabbi at the time been speaking very very vehemently about about respecting each other's opinion and uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says yes that's true and so I wrote an article called Political Civility, and in the article I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil, but boo. So the Village Voice takes it and they put a scare headline on it: yep. "Why I am no longer a brain dead liberal," and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction because this this book. It's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time. And I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago— well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something rather in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of, those were kind of like the, the bumping posts, if you will, of, of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yep. And, and the, the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's, you know, I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said, when the progression of incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and, and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really, really different because you get you get to muck about, you know. You get to expatiate a little bit. And, uh, but there's two things that the, 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 are equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important than a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a, an okay play, but you're not going to have a good and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all 
dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. But you can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut and, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show. I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing this Fingali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the uh, private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. Some of them are time servers, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. Every single one of them had a moment and a memory, and it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it, and I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so that, that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York, that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And, uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. <laughs> it was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing and by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up 
at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here is a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. This is Our American Stories. And again, the novel Chicago and the author David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. <laughs> 